May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio podcast. I'm DC Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So uh, today we have a guest, Helen Twarkoff. Helen was the uh, founder and for many years the editor of Tricycle, the Buddhist magazine. She wrote, um, I uh, maybe one of the first books on looking at the situation of Zen in America, American Zen teachers. Zen in America, five teachers in their search for an American Buddhism. And um, Helen um, is a debutee, a world traveler, a phrase I just learned from her. But she was applying it to like back in the 60s and 70s, uh, 60s, actually, she said, before there were hippies. <laughs> Let's go on and uh, give uh, Helen a call after we've had our pause to meditate. So when you hear the bell, if you have such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to end the meditation or whatever, hit unpause and we'll be here to hit the bell and give Helen a call. Hi, Helen. How are you doing? Hi. Hi. Good. How are you? Okay. Okay. Gee, it's been a while. <laughs> a really long time, David. I don't even remember. Yeah. So, uh, where are you? I am in drop-dead gorgeous Cape Breton Island in northern Nova Scotia, Canada. Oh, yeah. You mentioned something about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're like at the opposite end of the world. Yeah, yeah, pretty far off. <laughs> Could be 10,000 miles away. I mean, uh, that's quite a distance. Uh, and we could only be what? We could only be like 12,500 miles away or something. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But I imagine your environment is being extremely tropical. Yeah, it's sort of. Right? Sort of, yeah, it's sort yeah. of cool now uh, because yeah. it's uh, uh, July, July, August, sort of windy and cool. But when you say cool here, I'm still in a t shirt. <laughs> yeah. 
so cool here. You're wearing every piece of, <laughs> of winter clothing that you have. <laughs> but, but it's not the tundra. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, I'm on the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and it, mm-hmm. it's the, it's the uh, Gulf Stream. So it's warm enough to swim, which is wonderful. That's um, amazing. Yeah, but it, but it does not look tropical. It looks northern. It has a northern, northern look. Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, how long are you there for? Uh, well, I've been coming here for more than 50 years. And oh. I, uh, th- through the pandemic, I stayed here. Uh, it was by far uh, the safest place to be. And um, there has been quite a bit of COVID here recently and in my town. I'm about, I'm about six miles from a local town. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, I, 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 I've been going back and forth between Nova Scotia and New York, and this was certainly by far the, the safer place to uh, shelter in oh. place. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And, and what are you doing while you're there? Well, uh, I've been writing and, you know, I do my practice and I see some friends and I walk a lot. And um, I have two horses here that I take care of. I'm not riding anymore. I stopped riding a year or two ago, mm. but I take care of them and that's great. Mm. And, uh, mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, you said you've been going there for 50 years. Wow. Um, well, what? Well, what um you said you're doing your practice uh what what is your practice well i've been studying with Minja rinpoche a vajrayana teacher mhm uh and so i've been doing certain meditation practices uh under his guidance and where is he located nepal mostly primarily nepal uh-huh do you see him sometimes well, he was just did a tour of uh, the United States and part, some parts of Canada, and I did go from here to Boston to do a weekend teaching with him. Uh-huh. That was great. And uh-huh. uh, because of the pandemic, I have not been to Nepal. I had been going to Asia for part of every winter for the last, I don't know, 15 years. Oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah, and I I really would like to get, get back there, but we'll have to see, see how this virus unfolds. Mm, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, there's a new yeah. variant they say is the most uh, yeah. intelligent yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's yeah. it's not. I don't think it's as lethal as uh, some of the earlier ones, but they say it really gets around everything. But mm-hmm. they say still, mm-hmm. still get your booster because uh, mm-hmm. that'll mm-hmm. Uh, it. It might you know it it might not mm-hmm. stop you. From getting it, but you won't get it as bad if you've had a booster. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and apparently, you know, people are lax and not wearing masks in America and and here too in Bali. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens. But what I've yeah. read is yeah. that we should start. Uh, we should start wearing masks indoors and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I read the same thing, and I, I have to admit that I've been getting a little careless myself because the mask mandate is not on yet. I mean, it might come back here. We had it, then they took it away. Uh, but I, if I go to an, into the grocery store and I forget my mask, I don't always race back to the car to get it. 
I tend to try to do my grocery shopping fast and get out. So I have that's been a little. I have to stop doing that. I have to pay more attention. Yeah. Right. I look and see. You know what are other people doing? There are some places. You know, I just I put on a mask if they have a mask and not otherwise. But same, mm-hmm. I'm the same as you. I probably uh, should uh, be more careful. Uh, and yeah. uh, and let's see, we're going to a lunch today. Well, very small one with some people. A girl, their uh, family sending her to America for maybe a high school year abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And but it'll be we'll be sitting outside. You know, uh, yeah, there won't, yeah. won't be a lot of us. Um, mm-hmm. huh. So, um, well, how'd you get into uh, uh, that Tibetan Buddhism? What, what led you to that? Uh, let me think. Well, it was my first practice before I became involved with Zen, and then I went back to Tibetan Buddhism. Uh-huh. So um, I had been, <clears throat> let's see, I had traveled in Asia, uh, in uh, 60, okay, 64 to 66, something like that. Where? And um, Huh? Where? Well, I had spent six months, in, I was like a hippie, just, you know, traveling around. The way, they didn't call us hippies in those days. They called us WTs. You remember that? World no. Travelers. What's a WT? Yeah, WTs. WTs, and so I was in... I was what in is, wait a minute, what does WT mean? I, I don't recognize everything. World Traveler, World Traveler. That was before hippie. Oh, oh, well... Before hippie. Yeah, I see, I see. <laughs> so I was in Japan for six months, and then I traveled to Southeast Asia, and then I, I, um, I, I ended up uh, almost not going, but eventually ended up in Kathmandu. Mm. And... Um, that was a big experience for me, primarily uh, working uh, with the Tibetans in the Tibetan ref- in a Tibetan refugee camp uh, out in uh, Pokhara, past Pokhara. And um, but in those days, you know, there was nothing to read. I couldn't find any books on Buddhism, and uh, you know, the, the 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 Westerners that were in Nepal at that time were kind of. Um, Crazy, you know, a lot, a lot of drugs, uh, a lot of kind of uh, um, theater, a lot of theatrical display of various kinds of religiosity. Uh-huh. Uh, so that part of it was not so attractive. And I, uh, so I, I came back and I, uh, I started to, I tried to to go back to school, to to, to graduate school, uh, to try to study Tibetan Buddhism, but there was nobody to study with. I went back to New York City and. I was assigned a teacher whose specialty was Inner Mongolia. That was close enough, but that didn't work out, so I left again. Hmm. And um, how did this work out? Eventually, I just kind of dabbled. I finally started to read a little bit of Trumpa Rinpoche when those books came out in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had tried to, you know, I was involved with Arika. I don't know if you remember that. Arika. Yeah, it was one of those 70s off-spin kind of... Is that uh, Oscar Echazo? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was my first kind of... um, That was my first foray into any kind of spiritual experience. Uh, I was so uh, nervous about gurus. And the thing about Arika is they promised this sort of a path to enlightenment without a guru. And that was very attractive to me. Mm. Um, 
but it didn't quite work. Um, I, I think the program actually is an extraordinary program. Uh, what, what they did, what, what Oscar put together was, was sort of brilliant. But um, the idea was that the 50 people that he first trained in the initial group that went down to South America to Chile to, to practice with him, uh, they were going to be the group leaders and that those group leaders would replace the guru. Uh, and a kind of Gurdjieffian principle of, yeah. of uh, Sangha witnessing. And um, they just, at that time, they just were not strong enough to do that. Yeah. And so, uh, so I ended up envying the 50 people who had studied with Oscar and knowing that I could never do that because I wasn't in that first group. So eventually I had to leave and, and look around, and then I got involved in various uh, crackpot, you know, <laughs> 70s style seances and black crowd ceremonies and chanting all night. And then I kind of settled down at some point, uh, mm. and I started studying with uh, Dujun Rinpoche, who was my first teacher. Oh, oh, very good. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Ah. But I, that's kind of a funny, I don't really feel comfortable putting it that way because, uh, why? Because I, cause, because I didn't even know what it meant to be a student. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know how else to say it. He, he, he was in New York. He gave teachings. I went to those teachings. I was profoundly moved by him. I was profoundly touched by him. But did I know what the heck he was talking about? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not unusual. That's uh, <laughs> no, yeah. That's that's. A, I'd say that's definitely a a, a first step. Um, yeah, yeah. It was the first step. Yeah. Um, or one part of your extended first step, you know. That's. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Ah, and so uh, uh, what? What year was that? Seventy-five. Hmm. 76, 70, something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, yeah. uh, so what's next? <laughs> well, then, uh, you know, being a Nyingma Sangha, it famously fell apart like every other Nyingma Sangha at the, around that time did. Um, uh and there were kind of two camps were formed, and I kind of uh, was very alienated from both. So then I spent a year very, very, very depressed mm. and really didn't know what to do. And then finally, uh, yeah, then finally my friend Larry Shainberg, who writes a lot about Zen, so you might know him. Oh, yeah, I love, I, I love his um, accidental Buddhist. No, um no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Scheinberg. Um, no, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. Not accidental Buddhist. Um, ambivalent. Ambivalent Zen. Oh, ambivalent Zen. Yeah. Yeah. And about his master, Kudo or something, I forget the guy's name. Amazing. Kudo uh, Roshi. Kudo Roshi. Uh-huh. That was, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you should do a podcast with Larry. Oh, that's a great idea. Um, mm, mm -hmm. no, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you his information. Oh, do that. Well, you know, I, I, yeah. I emailed him a few years ago. Uh, there was a um, 
somebody uh, actually from the San Francisco Zen Center realm posted a uh, story about uh, Shunyu Suzuki. Uh, mm-hmm. And I went, nah. <laughs> you know, something mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, it was like um, a, a lead thing to some, for some workshop or something. I went, nah, he'd never do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He was saying, uh, he was saying uh, that he got a call at uh, Sokoji. Somebody said, what time is in? And said something like, it never stops or something and hung up. I went, no, <laughs> never would he do that. He was polite. He would have, he always encouraging. Uh, so I thought, yeah. maybe I'll, I'll write Schoenberg <laughs> because it uh-huh, sounded like uh-huh. his teacher. And he said, yeah, it does sound right. like him, but I don't know that story. <laughs> uh-huh. Um well, he had a book that came out last year. Oh, uh, uh, called Four Men Shaking" came out from Shambhala, and uh, you you would you would enjoy that book. Uh, yeah, you know, I I, I, I don't I read very very little uh, other than my work and stuff on the internet, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm always working mm-hmm. with Suzuki lectures, and and I, I've never been a good mm-hmm. reader, but. I'll keep that in mind because mm-hmm. I liked it. But yeah, do send me some. I, th- I I think I have it, but that'll remind me as soon as I get it. I'll go. Oh, okay. I'll ask okay. Him. Yeah. Um, okay. So go on. So you, you. Oh, so Larry. Larry had been up at Ada Roshi's, you know, in the Catskills uh, when yeah. it first opened, and that again famously blew up. Uh, you know, it had been blowing up. You know, episode after episode until it finally. <laughs> yeah. The big blow up. Yeah. <laughs> but at some point, Larry got very enthusiastic about a, a new young American Zen teacher in New York, Bernie Glassman. Oh, yeah. Who in those days we called Tetsigan, Tetsigan right. Sensei. Right. So Larry introduced me to those teachings, and I started going up to Riverdale, uh, you know, in the Bronx, a section of the Bronx, yeah. north of Manhattan. And, um, so I went to those talks, like public talks, for several months, and then I moved into that community for about eight or nine or close to ten years. Oh, is that right? Oh. Well, that must that must have been around the time that I met you because I was – I mean, I know that we met, but don't ask me when or where, but I had I – was... I know exactly where we met, but go on. Go on. I'll, I'll bring that up later. Oh, dear. I can't I, – I, Green Gulch. No. Gringo? Well, no, you know, I shouldn't say I know exactly where we met. I know what my oldest Miami, memory is. Miami, Miami, Miami and Well, my oldest memory is of uh, being in the, uh, what we call the flop room at, uh, at the city center of the San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, mm-hmm. Hmm. Maybe I'd met you before this, but I remember this because that would have been when you were working uh, on, uh, uh, just a second, uh, your book on uh, American teachers. Oh, Zen in America. Zen in America. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was probably, ta- and I talked to you about Richard Baker, probably. Yeah. Zen in America, five teachers in the search for an American Buddhism. Uh, uh, I remember I said to you, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago or something, I said, well, I really wasn't very helpful. Uh, you said, 
You were more helpful than other people. <laughs> uh, and and uh, yeah, see that well, that came out in '94. Wow. Uh, no, no, no. Is that in America? It oh, came out earlier. Oh yeah, of course. You know, I'm I'm looking. I wish they wouldn't do that uh, on Amazon. Uh, you know, they just put the latest version. Uh, yeah, Kodansha published a second version, and that might have been 94. But the first version that was published by North Point, which no longer exists, um, I can't remember, I think maybe eight, maybe 89, 89, yeah. 90, something like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that would have been, when I talked to you, would have been, 87 or January of 88. Yeah, yeah. And then I went yeah, to yeah. Japan. Uh, uh-huh. Mm, uh-huh. I read that book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that was neat. That was neat. And uh, it was sort of the first book of its type. Uh, am I right? You know, about Americans and teachers? Uh, gee, I, I can't remember. I, I don't remember. I don't remember what came. I don't remember what came out before that or after that. Or yeah, well, me, um, me too. But that's that's something that occurs to me. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, hmm. So uh, how how was it being with Bernie uh, Glassman? Oh <laughs> well. Oh gosh, I don't know what to say about that. You know. Um, of course, that community fell apart, too, but it started to fall apart about five minutes after I moved in, which is about five minutes after it started. <laughs> um, not, not, for the, not, not for all the sort of sexual scandals that brought down other communities, but, um, you know, Bernie had set up shop in this very grand uh, mansion in Riverdale. Yeah. Did you ever visit there? No. Well, it was this, it was a very grand, you know, Riverdale is this incredibly fancy area of New York City. It's actually part of the Bronx, but nobody who lives in Riverdale ever says they live in the Bronx. They don't live in the Bronx. They live in Riverdale and it's on the river and it's filled with large, elegant, gracious homes. And um, so this was a kind of an odd situation because uh, the resident community, when I moved in, had about 15 people. And it was a kind of a very ragtag group of us. And I think Bernie actually was never really comfortable in that environment. I don't think it was his place mm-hmm. uh, from the beginning. And um, But then maybe a year into having it... Um, he he began talking about starting a bakery, the Zen Bakery or whatever, the Grayston Bakery. Yeah. And uh, so there was some a lot of controversy around that. He had to convince a board of directors that business was really the way to introduce Zen uh, to America. That 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 business was the kind of you know the religious channel by which you could introduce this new, well at that time quite new tradition. Um, and the board was kind of wary, but they eventually went along with it. And so they bought this building up in Yonkers, which was just north of Riverdale, in a very run-down section. Um, but very quickly, Bernie started spending most of his time there. 
Mm-hmm. which meant that he wasn't in the Zendo, he wasn't doing Daisan, he wasn't doing Doksan, he wasn't giving talks and whatever. And so, um, it, you know, and the message to us is if you want to study Zen with Bernie Glassman, you can go and volunteer at the bakery. So that worked for some people, but not all of us. And uh, so that's when, I, that's when the community kind of, you know, uh, those people that it didn't work for left. I hung on there for quite a while. Um uh, but but oddly enough, <laughs> in the middle of writing a book about Zen teachers in America, I started really studying with my Zumi Roshi. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I started going to L.A. to see him. Uh, that was a kind of an odd juxtaposition. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. he was Bernie's teacher. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I was writing a book about Zen in America with, with American teachers, but... Um, at some point, I decided I didn't want to study with one. I wanted a more traditional. Yeah, well, that, school, that's okay. Old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Um, the uh, the last time, well, I don't know if it was the last time. Uh, in my memory right now, the last time I saw you might have been at my Zumi's funeral. Oh, oh. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, when was that, 97, 96, 97, something like that? God. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have any. No, 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 no. Later. I can't remember. I'll tell, I can tell you. Um, but, but, uh, tell, tell more about uh, uh, my Zooming. How how'd that work out and all that. Well, of course, it's another community that blew up with a huge well, yeah, it's still going, though. <laughs> huh? Still going. But, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, um, uh, one of my Tibetan teachers before that was involved in the in the uh, Nyingma uh, uh, Sangha splitting up, that, uh, used to say, uh, it was a Tibetan expression, the best, the best guru is one who lives six valleys away. That's right. That's right. Um, I never heard Six Valleys, uh, uh, but um, I quote that sometimes. And one reason is, uh, you know, you don't know about their personal life and you just focus on their teaching. Well, that was what what my focus was with my Zumi Roshi. I didn't know anything about drinking, about women. uh, And I, I, I had a very, in that sense, it was a very privileged relationship. I would fly in, I would go to retreats and I would leave. And, uh, and, and I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't witness any behavior that was problematic to me. And I, 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 you know, it was very uncompromised. I didn't have to deal with any of the stuff that the long-term residents had to deal with in terms of trying to figure out how to put all this stuff together. And actually I was pretty surprised when the, when the scandal broke, it didn't deter me from wanting to study with him at all. Yeah, I can understand um, that. But it was surprising. It was, it was, I mean, it was, it was, and I, and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how this guy could be teaching the way he was teaching and do things that were so hurtful to his family. All I knew is that, um, that he had a tremendous talent for introducing me to myself. Yeah. And I, I didn't believe in cancel culture then, and I still don't. You don't, didn't believe in what culture? Cancel. Oh, right, right. No, absolutely. Me either. 
Me so, either. Uh, so I, you know, I, I mean, I, 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 it was confusing. I was confused. It's not like, oh, this is all okay. This was not okay. Um, but I, I still don't know how to put it all together. I don't know how to put it all together. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, America is so puritanical. It just blows up stuff like that. Uh, one thing that I point out is uh, there's one very prominent Zen tradition in America that uh, really had no sexual scandal, but uh, I know uh, students from there, especially one, who tell me shocking stories about, oh, how severe it was and really... About what? How severe it was and how um, extreme and culty and, uh, you know, a lot of hitting and... and, uh, you know, uh, even, you know, uh, saying, you know, saying, you know, holding up the monk who held a knife to his chest, uh, saying he'd, if he didn't get enlightened that night, he'd kill himself. So one of their students shot himself in the head because he didn't get enlightened, which was so extreme. So, but that was all on the violent sin. And, you know, Stanley Kubrick said, kiss it, uh, it's X. Cut it off. It's PG. <laughs> uh, it's uh, there's really a thing about that. Um, uh, and you know, one thing about my zooming is, and I knew him pretty well. Is um, uh, he was very honest. He never denied anything. Like with drinking, he he went into uh, yeah. treatment. Uh, he confessed to his students. Um, you know, there were problems, you know, as are when you have affairs and stuff. Uh, it's really hard being a, a guru and, you know, you really should have guards uh, <laughs> around you if, if you have to have good conduct. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, well, depending on the person. Some people, that's not a problem. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. but um, you know, uh, anyway, anyway, uh, he... He, uh, I, I always appreciated about, uh, appreciated that about him. Uh, mm, yeah, and I'm sorry. I knew his brothers in Japan. I stayed with uh, mm -hmm. Bushi. I can't even remember his name in uh, Yokohama. I remember that. Yeah, a couple yeah. of times. And oh boy, was he helpful! He'd give me giant amounts of money when I left. And he had a very wealthy <laughs> temple. And so did, um, oh, God, the one in Tokyo stayed there. Uh, where, where, where my Jimmy died, and I, I have bathed in the bathtub where he died. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was sad, sad. But anyway, I, I liked him a lot. I, I first met him in 66. I'd seen him when I went to L.A. Uh, mm hmm mm. Mm and that's good to hear what you have to say about him, uh, that you really appreciated his teaching. Well, I, you know, I, I, I do think America is a very puritanical country, and I think we do blow these things way up. But, but I think for myself personally, I, to this day, I have some confusion about um, the application of, of uh, what we call enlightened states or, or emptiness and how we apply that to our lives. But there's a lot of confusion for me that in our, in our, in our, in our, even right now in terms of 
of uh, a response to the government, our government, for example. I have, there's some. I, 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 there's not a lot of clarity for me about putting that all together, in terms of quote being a Buddhist or whatever that means. But um, so so it's not just a it's not it's not such a question of morality like like Americans saying this is wrong. Uh, it, it has to do something with you know um, on the ground daily life and a vision of emptiness, something like that. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the uh, well, to me, that's um, you're bringing up uh, sort of engaged Buddhism. Uh, what to do about the fact that there's all sorts of uh, harmful things happening in your society that you'd like to do something about? Mm-hmm. What can you do? And uh, that's a problem and. Well, like in Myanmar, uh, I know uh-huh. I've, I've uh-huh. known some monks, uh, Western monks yeah. who've practiced there, and and I've set uh, vipassana retreats here in Bali with Myanmar monks. Uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah, I, I, the, I like the vipassana retreats. Oh, I'm getting too old for them, uh, but mm-hmm. but uh, there were uh, monasteries that would you know be actively opposed to the government, they get shut down, you know, the monks would be hauled off. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. one that was very successful just stayed neutral and just practiced and didn't say anything about what was happening. And then there's some, of course, mm-hmm. that became uh, wildly anti-Muslim and advocating violence. And that's happened in a n- number mm-hmm. of, uh, that's happened in Sri Lanka in uh, in uh, Myanmar and to an extent in Thailand. Uh, so, I don't know, you just got to mm-hmm. decide for yourself, huh? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you you studied with Maizumi, but you said you went back to Tibetan Buddhism. Oh, yeah, then Maizumi Roshi died as we just we were talking about his funeral. 95. So for a couple of... Uh, years i was pretty lost i was i was i had started tricycle so i was very busy hugely busy um i didn't have a lot of time to do what i had done you know some 20 years earlier which is sort of go around and check out gurus and go to different retreats yeah. and stick my nose in, in there. Yeah. yeah i just didn't have time to do that but i also you know at that time uh i don't know how old i was i don't remember 60 years old something like that and uh, I, I, I actually had a few years there where I was under the delusion that maybe I didn't need a teacher. And that turned out to be not such a good move. <laughs> so it took a couple of years for me to say, oh, boy, this isn't, you know, I, I, I need some help here. I need some guidance. Uh, I'm not going to be able to um, go much further on my own. And so then I, 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 uh, I started to pull back from tricycle. And then that allowed me more time to start looking around. Mm. And um, uh, I don't know exactly why. I, I mean, at that point, I don't think I cared about the, you know, whether it was Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism or Vipassana. Uh, it was really about the person. And um, um, I had been invited to a dinner party in New York City for Minja Rinpoche. 
at the time he was so young and uh i wasn't particularly impressed he he was he was shy and um his english wasn't so great and um it was not love at first sight but he did mention that he was going to be doing a retreat at Gempo Abbey in Nova Scotia, which is about right up the road from me, two hours north of here. Oh, is that right? Wow. So I thought, well, I, you know, this is like, what, what's the expression? If I don't go, it's like kicking a gift horse in the mouth or something like that. <laughs> and so I, <clears throat> I arranged to go uh, to that retreat. And it was absolutely fantastic. It was exactly what I needed. Because I had felt that my, I had been continuing a Zen meditation practice uh, in those years after Roshi died, um, but I, I, I was really beginning to space out. You know, I'd be sitting on the cushion, just kind of like a, a kind of getting lost in emptiness, getting lost in thoughts, not not being rigorous in what I was doing, and I needed some, mm, I needed some rigor. And basically, for five days, he um, kept asking, where is your mind? And he asked it for, you know, of everybody in the room, like, where is your mind? Where is it now? It was where, you know, where, it was just very, very specific, pointing, very interactive. And I just fell in love with him because it was so, it was so much what I needed at that moment. Mm. It could not have been better. And, uh, and then I also thought, well, because he has a very, a very, uh, at that point, his older brother was already a kind of a big deal teacher, Sonny Rinpoche, and was attracting a lot of students and a lot of famous people. And it was like a big guru scene. And this guy was supposed to be, you know, the... Who was his older brother? Uh, Sonny Rinpoche. Oh, uh-huh. And so I thought that this guy looked like going to be the kind of a the marginalized kid brother with a small scene. And that turned out to be not true at all, but it didn't matter. <laughs> I thought I was going to circumvent a big kind of guru, guru scene. Um, but that's okay. But by, by the time I figured out that I got that part wrong, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And so I started uh, going to Asia in the winters to do retreats with him. And then he started coming to America once a year. Now, when you say go to Asia, would you be more specific? Well, he has two monasteries that he teaches at. Well, he teaches at three monasteries. He teach. He has his own monastery in Bodh Gaya. Oh, in India, in the state of Bihar. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know it's where the Mahabodhi Temple is, and he has a monastery in Kathmandu, uh, uh, just outside the main downtown area, in an area called Swayambhu. And he teaches sometimes at his own teacher's monastery in Beer, uh, in Himachal Pradesh, at Sai Chi, Sai, Situ Rinpoche. And the name of that monastery is Sherabling. Mm. So those are three places where he teaches. Mm. Wow. And and you've been going over there quite regularly for a long time. Yeah. Hmm. I from about yeah from from about nine, uh, 2006 until the pandemic kept me from going. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um. Well. Um. When did you first get into publishing? It was 
was uh, which, which was first your, uh, the the book on on uh, American Zen teachers was before Tricycle, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and um, well, just in terms of your publishing history, uh, uh, what led you to get into the the um, the book on Zen teachers? Five Zen in America, right? Five. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember. Uh, did you? Did you have a, a history of writing and? Did, did, oh, I always wanted to be more of a writer than I ever was. Uh huh. I mean, I always I wanted to study journalism and I never did, and um, uh, but I did study anthropology, and um, mm. so there were aspects of that book as well as tricycle that really had to do with an interest in how these two cultures come together. Yeah. Yeah. Adaptation and changes and shifts in the culture and what allows things to happen, and so I think that was very much part of the book, and I think I I carried that interest with me into the magazine. So, um, what, 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 what? Let me just ask you. I, I really want to talk about how you started tricycle and all, but uh, where where do you come from? New York City. Where in New York City? I was born in New York Hospital, and I grew up on East 23rd Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. That's in Manhattan, huh? Yes. My wife was born in Manhattan. Uh, really? Yeah. Where, where did she grow up? Man, she grew up north of there, like, I don't know, Connecticut oh. and stuff. Uh, yeah. And my yeah. first wife, uh, Diane Goldschlag, uh, was from the Bronx. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> So the um, so um, and uh, where where did you go to school? I went to public schools, um, PS forty, uh, no PS forty one, something on Nineteenth Street, Second Avenue, uh-huh. and then I got a scholarship to a fancy girls' school called Dalton, mm-hmm. and I was a very poor student and. Uh, huh. <laughs> so then I went to, uh, well, I had, I, I actually had a very hard time in school uh, for many different reasons, but I, uh, when I was past 50 years old, I was diagnosed with the dyslexia, oh. which hadn't been bad enough to completely not be able to read or to do badly in school, but I had a very hard time reading and I gave up easily. And, um, so I, 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 uh, you know, I was, I, was, I, I I was labeled a very uncooperative child, uh-huh. and I might have very well have been very uncooperative, even if I had been uh-huh. able to do the studies. Uh-huh. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, that's... Um, but uh, uh, so even to, even when I went to Dalton, I had to get tutored in English and reading and writing. Mm. And um, how'd you yeah. get a scholarship <laughs> if you weren't a good student? That's a really good question uh, because my father was a painter. Hmm. And uh, and uh, so his being a painter was their version of a diverse uh, having diversity. Oh yeah, uh-huh. uh huh. And 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 uh, it was something that I held against the school. 
so and, and it, <laughs> I might not have done well because of my reading problems, but I also was resentful that I was accepted because of him, because of my father, not me. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, and then you went to college. And then I went to the University of Cincinnati because one of the very few schools I could get into. Oh. And then I transferred back to Hunter College after two years. Mm. And that's in... And I did finish. I got a degree. I, I, I got all the way to the end. <laughs> but school was always problematic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I just wanted... And did you have any uh, uh, inclinations uh, in terms of the... Uh, you know, what's it all about, spiritualism, way-seeking mind, or anything back then? Well, there's something, I've, I've been writing a book uh, that's kind of half memoir and half history, Buddhist history in America. Um, there are things that come up that are peculiar for me. Like one point, because I, I really was, I was a bad kid. You know, I was very naughty. I got into a lot of trouble all the time. And, um, but when I was about 16 years old, my father gave me In Search of the Miraculous. Oh, yeah. About you, about Uspensky. Uh, let me, uh, yeah, it look, was a, uh, um, no, it was Uspensky's book about Gurdjieff. One of the uh, memories I have that is so astonishing to me is why my father gave me this book. Because basically, my memory of myself is that I was kind of spaced out all the time, but not in a mystical way at all. I was just, <laughs> uh, I was just lost in dream world and fantasy and any which way that could get me out of being where I was. Yeah. Uh, but why he gave me this book has been one of the great mysteries of my life. He handed it to me saying that a friend had given it to him, but that he wasn't interested in these matters, but he thought I might be. Why, I do not know. Hmm. So did you delve into the book? Well, for, first of all, I could hardly read anything. <laughs> Reading Ospensky wasn't exactly easy. Um, I tried. I got a few things out of it here and there. But, uh, yeah, I did, get, I, I did get something out of it. I got things out of it. Yeah, I did, without being able to really... You know, I certainly couldn't tell you what Gurdjieff's system of self-evolution was. Um, I think the most important thing that I got from it was simply that there were spiritual teachers in the world yeah. um, that, were, that were contemporary. Up until then, the only ones I, heard, had, had, I had heard about had been dead for centuries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and so um, I'm sort of looking here to what led up to you doing this book on Zen teachers in America. Yeah. You'd been involved yeah. with Zen. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to uh, remember what the inspiration for that was. Uh, um, and I, I can't. I can't remember. I don't. I don't have a very clear. <laughs> Did you have any except, involvement? Except that I think that yeah, with writing with, or researching uh, or. Uh, well, yes, I had. I had been working as a as a kind of freelance editor uh, on on some books 
uh, to make some money. And there uh, you go. I, I had been doing some writing. Uh, what year are we talking about? I forget. Uh, you know, I had written some things for some of the Dharma magazines, like uh, what do you call? What was Rick when Rick Fields was that Vajradatu's son? Oh yeah, right. There you and, go. There you go. Yeah, and so maybe some other things like that. But I do think that that in my um, that my my sort of anthropological lens that I that I often look through to 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 try to understand where I was and 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 what was going on in the society that that was interesting to me that meetup between uh, Zen Buddhism and the United States. Mm. We've got now uh, some some stepping stones leading to the. The uh, mm-hmm. Zen in America, Five Teachers, and the Search for an American Buddhism. Hey, who were the five teachers? Aiken Roshi, mm-hmm. Baker Roshi, uh, Glassman, Maureen Stewart, and Kwang Roshi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what's amazing? But at that time, I didn't know how to make a selection of teachers. I somehow didn't want to take responsibility for it being my personal selection. So I came up with a category that had very few people in it. And the category was uh, American teachers <clears throat> who had received transmission from Japanese teachers. Ah, uh-huh. all right. And at that time, there were a total of seven. Who are the other two? Kaplow Roshi, who did not want to work with me. And maybe I think Walter Noah. Walter Noah, but turned out, what about G.U. Kennett? Who who was her? Uh, who did she? Oh yeah, she had G.U. Kennett had uh, had yeah. transmission in the Soto School. Uh, oh, because she was an American. Oh yeah, she's uh, from uh, yeah yeah England. Yeah, she, she started uh, yeah. Anglican yeah. Uh, Zen that's in America. Right. That's right. Uh, that's but, right. Uh, so but, yeah. I respected her a lot. She was, she was really uh, eccentric, but um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I I liked her, and, and uh, I like the people I know who've studied there. Uh, but go on. No, I just think it's amazing if you look at that. There were a total of seven in in uh, what year were we talking about? Nineteen eighty. Eighty-five or three or something. 83. Eighty-five. Yeah. And now, now you, I, can't, I have no, I can't, can't possibly keep track. There are hundreds and hundreds. Yeah. Well, American teachers, right. American teachers in who have American teachers, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I have no idea. <laughs> That's right. Are. That's right. I don't use the word Roshi. Uh, it, it's mm-hmm. too. Uh, it's overused in America, or I avoid it. I, I have to use it some. It's way overused. Yeah. It didn't use like it's used in Japan. People basically, yeah. it's just used inside temples in Japan. People don't even yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, People yeah, don't. Yeah. They call Suzuki Suzuki-san uh, at right. his temple. Yeah. Right. But um, right. also another reason is then I just put Roshi after everybody's name. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, because if you say it for one person uh, – like you just said, you just said Baker Roshi, Kwong Roshi, Aiken Roshi, Bernie Glassman. Well, Bernie Glassman, yeah. uh, uh, it, it, it's a matter of... Uh, 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 because he, he himself stopped using Roshi, I think, or, or he at least 
he wanted people to call him Bernie. Yeah, yeah. Um, he stopped using Tetsigan, so. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. So, um, hmm. So, uh, how was how was your um, how, was everybody cooperative? Those five people were yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, hmm. Hmm. And all right, you got any comments on any of that? Just I'm just curious. Like your experience with the people. Um, let me think. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, they were all incredibly uh, kind to me and, and helpful and generous in uh, participating and encouraging. And, uh, yeah, I think I, I think I approached my subject with a lot of uh, naivete, mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of idealism. And uh, it was okay, you know. It, it was what it was. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but it was good. It was good. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. And Aiken's gone. Bernie's gone. Uh, Maureen. Maureen's gone. gone. So you've, you've got Baker and Kwong, and they're they're both going strong. Uh, in in yeah. their yeah. mid eighties. In fact, Bill might even be older. I'm not sure. Yeah. Mid around mid eighties. Uh mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh mm hmm. Hmm. Uh so um then uh, how did uh, tricycle come about? Now that was a big deal. Tricycle. Oh, gee, David, you're go you're going <laughs> down memory lane here. Let me see. Um, well, let's see. You might remember some of these conversations. You might have even been participating in them. I don't remember, but Rick Fields and I had been talking about some kind of a Buddhist journal, a pan-Buddhist journal, all through the 80s. And I know that we were in L.A., uh, maybe, uh, what's his, uh, uh, um, Andy Cooper in L.A.? Don't know. Was involved in those conversations, and you might have no, been. I don't no, remember. No, I wouldn't. No. So we, we, there were people sort of scattered around the country, and then Rick was working on how the swans came to the lake at that point. Yeah. And then he he published that, and uh, great at that book, point, great book, and a great person, great book, and and then uh, 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 Trump Rinpoche asked him to come to Boulder to edit uh, Vajradatu's son. Yeah. So that put our project on hold. Yeah. You know, and the, the, the idea that we had was very simplistic. It was just that there are all these different lineages and uh, we could come together under one umbrella and it was going to, you know, it was very idealistic and it was going to be wonderful. We were going to have such, so much fun and putting it together. Uh -huh. And then, of course, in the middle 80s, all these scandals happened. And including the one with Trump Rinpoche's heir, you know, Tom Rich. And uh, and Rick, if you remember, was very much. Oh, I'd forgotten that scandal. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Rick was very much in the middle of that. Yeah. And it, oh, you and mean, you mean Ursel Tensing? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, Tom Rich, I just, yeah. Well, I, I, maybe that wasn't even his name. Maybe I got it wrong. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Um, so then Rick, you know, parted company with the Vajradhatu's son over that because according to, to Rick, he was not allowed to publish anything uh, because it was basically controlled by the board of directors. Right, right. And at that point, I, so uh, he claims he was not allowed to publish anything. And of course, nobody in, in all these these organs, these house organs, nobody could talk about it because it was all the boys club. You couldn't you couldn't write about it in the windmill. You're not going to write about it in uh, 10 directions. You weren't going to write about it in uh, whatever else was out there at the time. So there was no public forum, not even a public forum. There was no place for Buddhists to come together and talk about it. But if you remember correctly, I don't remember where you were, but it's basically all we talked about for a couple of years or two. Oh, yeah. Really yeah. Rick and I were well, talking about. Rick and I were on the phone continuously talking yeah, about it. Yeah, I, I remember being in – now, I was in uh, – one reason I, I wasn't involved in any discussions. I don't know if I would have been anyway, as I was in Japan uh, – you were in Japan. Yeah, yeah. 88, yeah, yeah. 88 to 92. Uh, but I remember yeah. visiting yeah. Rick uh, in Boulder when he was still doing uh, the Vajradhatu Sun and after uh -huh. the Ursul Tenzing uh, uh, scandal yeah. had sort of divided the community and he was being very honest and forthcoming mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think he had, he had me speak to... Uh, people about uh, I don't know. I don't know if if that Dick Baker had his problem. Then that was eighty three. Oh, of course. That was one of, of the course. So it was after that. Roshi. Yeah. Yeah. Maizumi um, Roshi, and then there was a scandal in the Vipassana community. The whole thing was a mess. Was oh, Vipassana. I, I'm not familiar with that. What, what, what's? Yeah. Well, it, it it wasn't. It didn't make the front page headlines the way the others did. Yeah. But uh, but but it, but but what what came out of it is that for us to see that we were all pretty much in the same boat. Yeah. All these communities with all these separate lineages and everybody thinking their lineage was the best and why that was true. Yeah, and the <laughs> the Hindu <laughs> well, ones too. Yeah, so then we all fell apart at around the same time, and it, and it was terrific. It gave us a terrific opportunity to shake off a lot of our naivete and idealism and, you know, kind of buckle down and get to work in some way, in many different ways. Yeah. And um, so then, but the, but the, but the, the idea of what, what we would do with a, with a magazine kind of changed. I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, la da, da wouldn't this be nice? Wouldn't this be fun? It was like, I know what a big motivating factor had to do with Richard Baker because that was the first time that mainstream media picked up the story. And so we thought, well, you know, mainstream media is going to talk about this, and we have no place to talk about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at least we should own our own problems. And and put these things into a context, a sympathetic context. Um, so that so that kind of changed the the trajectory of what what was uh, what we thought we might want to do. And who was involved in tried? You were the first editor. Well, Rick and I, Rick, yeah, <laughs> Rick and I were going to do it together. That was the plan. And. Uh, 
I, I think if we had stayed together uh, as, as uh, you know, colleagues in this project, that he would have been the editor because I didn't know anything about magazine publishing. And you remember he had done those books with uh, Trump Rubichet that uh, he did, what was it? Chris, mm. books that came out of Boulder in the, in the 70s, Crystal, Crystal something? No, I, I, I don't know. He, he, he had published a couple of magazines and also he worked on, uh, on Zero. Do you remember Zero, the magazine that came out of um, uh, um, uh, Sasaki Roshi's community? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, anyway, he had some journalistic experience and he had finished working on uh, Swans, which was, of course, very different than magazine. But in any event, um, Rick was living in Boulder and I was in New York City at that point. Well, I had moved down from, uh, from Riverdale, I, from Bernie's community. I had moved back to Manhattan. And, uh, but Rick, at that time, uh, had lots of financial issues. And he was living with uh, with a woman who was threatening to kick him out if he didn't get his act together in terms of money. And he had he had joined Debtors Anonymous, and he was tra- <laughs> he was trying to keep notebooks on all of his expenses and trying to be very diligent about it, having a very hard time. Anyway, uh, he decided at some point that he needed quote a real job. And there was nothing going on at that time for Tricycle that suggested that there was a real job here. You mm-hmm. know, it just, we didn't have any money. We were trying to raise money. Nobody gave us any money. Everybody kind of patted us on the head in a very condescending way and said, oh, this is wonderful. Keep going. You're so nice. But nobody gave us any money and nobody directed us to any money. Um, uh, and so Rick finally kind of very sheepishly had to tell me one day that he was applying for quote, a real job. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was furious. Uh, <laughs> uh. But, uh, but that's, so then I became editor. Well, wait a minute. What <laughs> real job did he get? Well, event, well, I don't know exactly whether it was that year and if it was the same job he interviewed for, but, shortly after I started Tricycle, he was working at Yoga Journal. Right. He became the editor of Yoga Journal. Right. I visited him there in his office. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So there there might have been a gap where he had applied. I think there was another job that he was applying for, and either he didn't get it or he didn't want it. Mm. Uh, But he needed a job with a real salary. Mm. And there was nothing happening at Tricycle to suggest that that was a possibility. Hmm. So there you were all by yourself. Uh, was was Tano involved? Wasn't he involved? Tano was living in Berkeley, and he was very helpful, but he didn't have any money, and he didn't know any money. And, you know, um, eventually what happened is after Rick uh, was made it clear that he couldn't continue, you know, in any kind of um, hands-on development with this, uh, Lex Hickson gave me enough money to hire a publishing consultant, and that was Lorraine Kisley. And without her, Tricycle would never ever have happened. Mm. Uh, she had worked. She she really knew the magazine world. She had worked on the startup of Parabola. She had worked at Essence. She had worked uh, at. She had been a reporter for Time Magazine. Mm. 
early on in her career. So she knew she knew magazines, and she was, you know, it was with her help that uh, all of the sort of um, business work of magazines, which I didn't know anything about that, got put into place. You know, how do you set up subscriptions and fulfillment houses and advertising and, and distribution, all of that stuff. Oh, gosh. Uh, she put all of that in, in, in place. And then um, and then I begged her to stay on. And so she stayed on at the magazine as publisher for quite a few years. Ah, uh, uh. Yeah, and that and that's how we got off the ground and and stayed steady for well, it wasn't exactly steady in terms of finances, but it, uh, it was what it allowed us to keep going was her expertise. Mm, mm. Here it says, "I just wrote tricycle on the URL line, tricycle the Buddhist review, uh, independent non-sectarian Buddhist quarterly." that publishes Buddhist teachings, practices, and critique, a beacon of Western Buddhism, that's in quotes. The magazine has been recognized for its willingness to challenge established idea when Buddhist communities and beyond, with within Buddhist communities and beyond. And then it says, first issue, 1991, based in New York City, editor and publisher James Shaheen, Former editors, Helen Twarkov. Yeah. It says James Shaheen, editor and publisher. And you said that the woman you mentioned. Uh, you- oh, Lorraine left quite a while ago. She, 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 you know, I had, I had begged her to stay on year in and year out uh-huh. until at some point I, I couldn't keep her there any longer. And I forget what year that was. Oh, I see. Uh, and then I, I I haven't worked in the office for, I think James joined the staff working under Lorraine initially in the publishing side, and then he but he he had been working in the editorial offices of Forbes magazine. Oh, and then uh, when I left, he took over as editor and publisher. Mm. But that was about two thousand eight. He's been there longer now than I was. Oh, originally. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, oh, this thing I'm looking at now, it's current. Uh, oh, he's the editor and publisher now. Wow. Well, uh, how, how so how was it to come out with your first issue? Oh, my God. <laughs> it was absolutely extraordinary. I, I, uh, I, I uh, you know, the the cover was absolutely dazzling. I don't know if you remember it, but uh, Frank Olinsky, who was a, a, an award-winning graphic designer and interested in Buddhism, uh, had agreed to help us with design work completely free. He didn't get a, he didn't get paid a dime for years. He worked for us. He didn't get paid any money. And um, the cover he came up with, I don't know if you remember it. But it was uh, an image of the Dalai Lama. It, it was a Herb Ritz portrait of His Holiness, mm. uh, with a looking, looking in profile, a kind of profile image, uh, with his head tilted up, without his glasses, and it's a it's a black and white image, and he framed it in maroon, and it had a um, the headline on top. I forget what you call it. The top bar uh, at the uh, just at the very top of the page mm-hmm. of, of the cover page was Spalding Gray's interview with the Dalai Lama. Mm. It, it was amazing. I, 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 I couldn't, I, I, it, I it, yeah, I, 
it was so much more professional looking than anything I had imagined, even though I can barely open the book, uh, the, the magazine, the first issue today, because <laughs> the typography inside is very unprofessional. You know, there's a lot of what we call rivers, you know, like in the text and so forth. A lot of what? It's, it's, when the, it's when the typography is very uneven and you get breaks, line breaks, and we call them rivers. They look like rivers in the text. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter. Anyway, the point is that the, that the inside was not quite as professional looking as the outside. The outside is absolutely gorgeous. But we started off, I thought we were going to print 5,000 copies. And thanks to Lorraine's genius, uh, we ended up with a, uh, a first run of, uh, by, the time, by the time magazine was printed, we had 17,000 subscribers. So that was more than three times what we had initially imagined. Ah. Uh. Oh, wow. That's impressive. <laughs> That's impressive. But it also tells you something about uh, catching a wave at the right time. Yeah. I mean, how did you get the word out to that many people? Um, yeah. We did a, a direct mail solicitation. This was all Lorraine. Uh, and what mailing list she used I don't know. I, I, maybe she used some of the Dharma magazines, you know, like Vajradhatu's son, which I can't even remember whether it was actually going at that time, um, or Parabola, or uh, what else was around? New Age Journal? No, New Age, maybe? Well, yeah, that was around, sure. Okay, so whatever. I don't remember. Shabala Publications? Hmm. Oh, you think maybe maybe, uh, maybe uh, you got some help from Shambhala? Shambhala Publications. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, that would be an obvious list. But you know what? I, 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 I didn't have anything to do with that. And uh, I never quite understood it. I never quite understood the whole business side of it. Well, uh, New Age Journal from 74. Um. Wow. Well, that's amazing. That's am and all right. So, how did they sell? You know, you're you're asking me questions that I, I just don't remember those details. All I know is that we stayed alive. Yeah, somehow. that's the we that's never the had answer. Any money. I mean, we just didn't have any money. I, I mean, one of the biggest surprises of my life at Tricycle was I did not expect to be spending a huge amount of my time fundraising. Oh, yeah. And I had to. Yeah, yeah. And that, uh, you know, it was just a, it, it, it was difficult. It was exhausting. It took up an enormous amount of, of my time that I thought I would be better spent on editing, but that's how we kept it alive. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I saw you at a fundraiser you did in San Francisco and Pacific Heights. Well, again, I was successful enough to keep it going. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that... Uh, I don't think I got a decent night's sleep <laughs> for, for the entire time I was running the magazine because I would be so concerned about money. Mm. But, you know, it, it's still there. It's still going. James Shaheen turned it around financially. We've had, we've had very hard times, you know, like the 2008. That was really, really hard on the magazine. Um, and, and, I mean, you know, we got through that. James got us through that. He got us through that. Mm. 
And uh, he developed, you know, the, the Internet in a way that I never could have. I'm too much of a Luddite. I got at it just in the nick of time in terms of the, uh, uh, the development of online coursework and uh, presence and so forth, social media platforms. Um, yeah. Mm. What led you to leaving uh, Tricycle? And and wait, but but I the, my image of it is you stayed with Tricycle at a in a in a way when after you were editor you stayed maybe yes I did that's true I pulled back I pulled right. back and I stayed first I, I kicked myself upstairs I, I I gave myself a title of executive director or something like that which basically meant fundraiser in chief. Yeah, but I uh, but but the idea was that James would take over the uh, the editorial work, and then I all I would do was fundraise, and so it became not as onerous um, if I if I didn't have to meet the editorial deadlines, if I didn't have to combine those. So I did that for a couple of years, and I also think at the time, um, I sort of wanted to stay around the office. I had some idea about having trying to learn how to be a decent boss because I did not know that when I started and I was not a good boss. Uh, and I had some ideas about wanting to learn something about what was being called enlightened leadership. But the truth is that I kind of dropped that idea kind of quickly. I decided, oh, maybe I'm not so interested in that after all. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> and, uh, I just, I just wanted to change it up, you know. Wanted to, I wanted to pull back more than I, than the executive ex- job allowed for. Mm. Mm. What, what happened then? You know, where'd you go? What'd you do? Yeah. So then I, uh, yeah. Well, I, uh, I stayed in New York. I, uh, I, 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 I. I I pulled back, and then I think in 2008, just before the financial crash, just before I left altogether, big going away mm. party or retirement party or something, and I'm out. And I'm not on the board. I'm not doing anything. And um, but at that point, you know, I also didn't have a teacher because my Zumi Roshi had died, and I needed that time. And I started going on retreats and started looking around about that. But I think by that time, let me think. Yeah, when I was pulling back, I started going on different retreats, and then, uh, and then I started going to Asia. So in 2009, Minjira asked me to work on uh, this book about about Nundro, which was a, a going you know a, a introductory fundamental Tibetan practice, and it was originally going to be a chapbook for his own students a kind of how-to manual for just his own students. But that turned out to be a big fat book that was published by Shambhala. And that book was called Turning Confusion into Clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember when it came out, but I worked on that for a couple of years uh, and went back to Asia, worked with him in Asia and did work and you know in the United States and went back to Asia and so forth. Right. It's turning confusion into clarity, a guide to the foundation practices of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and you did another one called with the same person, 
In love with the world, yeah. a monk's journey through the bardos of living and dying. Yeah. So at some point, uh, just when we were finishing up our work with uh, turning confusion into clarity, Mindra Bache left for a homeless retreat for four and a half years. Mm. So I didn't see him. I did continue going back to Asia. I don't know that I went to Asia every single year when he was gone, but I know I, I sort of took advantage of him not being there to do things uh, that I hadn't been doing. Like one year I, I went to Bhutan where I had never been. Oh, and neat. One year I went to uh, Vietnam, which I had never been to. And so I did go back to Asia, but uh, he was in, he was in his wandering retreat. And then when he came out, we started working on uh, in love with the world. Mm. How what was your experience in Bhutan? How. Oh, Bhutan, I'm sorry. How Bhutan. was it? Oh, I loved it. 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 Wonderful, wonderful place to visit. It was a, it was a tricycle tour. Tricycle started offering, you know, pilgrimages to different Buddhist uh, areas. Uh -huh. So it was a tricycle tour, and we always do it with a uh, some kind of scholar teacher. And for that, it was John McCransky. Mm-hmm. Tibetan American teacher in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, and he was terrific. And, you know, the country was so, so very beautiful, so extraordinary. And, there's just, you know, there's nothing to do, look at except Buddhist temples and fantastic <laughs> landscape. You know, it's great. It's just great. Mm. Yes, they have, they have, uh, they have, you know, we have a GDP, um, uh, yeah. What, what's GDP? Uh, uh, gross national product G or something. GNP, GDP, right. They have gross, uh, they have yeah. national happiness. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. And that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> happiness is their most important product. Uh, not for the Nepalese in Bhutan, but for them. They, well, I didn't want to, I wasn't going to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yeah, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. It's definitely a big problem. Yeah. Um, mm, yeah. So uh, what do you think about uh, climate change? I think it's so overwhelming, I don't even know how to think about it. I'm reading a book now, I don't know if you know it, called Ministry of the Future. Mm -hmm. Ministry for the Future of the Ministry. The Ministry for the Future, I think. Uh and it's um, a very, very hugely wide panoramic view of that takes place a little bit in the future, not so much. I can't remember what date they used, two, 2050 or whatever. But it's, um, what do I think about it? I think that, uh, I think it's all happening. I, I'm, I'm not so optimistic about reversing what's going on. Um, I looked at the map today that showed the temperatures for London at 41 Celsius. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like 105 or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it's interesting to to try to know something about as uh, 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 as a Buddhist uh, what our relationship to this is or could be or what we're doing and. Um, yeah, I think Buddhists are so lucky. 
I think Buddhists are incredibly lucky. We have such incredible tools in the toolkit. It's not going to save us, but we have a, we have a lot of ways of uh, trying, trying, trying to deal with it. Yeah. That other people don't. And um, I mean, I can't, I can't claim that I, that I use my tools as effectively as they're meant to be used, but I'm very grateful that I have them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. You know, I don't know how old you are, but you know, I'm going to check out before it gets a whole lot. Oh, I don't know. Face London is 41 now. Uh, I might be around to see uh, yeah. the beginning of the world. That's almost 106. Um, uh, I'm 77. How old are you? 79. Wow, you're my senior. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm your senior. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, I, um, uh, you know, I, I've, I, the, the one, the, I got a little involved in some environmental stuff, you know, after I came to Zen Center. I, I did little bits of civil rights work and stuff beforehand, SDS. And, uh, but nuke, the threat of nuclear war and the, the horrible, uh, implications of, of all these 10 zillion nuclear bombs being controlled by people and computers is something I did put a lot of time into. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people in Zen Center did, and Zen Center got involved. Uh, and uh, Richard Baker and I talk now about uh, the threat of uh, nuclear war is, is, is great or greater now than ever, uh, and people don't realize it. Uh, but um, the threat of uh, climate change is different. It's it's coming at a steady and increasing pace. The nuclear war thing is like uh-huh. is like roulette. You don't know what's going to happen. Right. right. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, pessimistic. I'm optimistic. Uh, 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 in a Buddhist way. Uh, I feel that ultimately uh, everything's okay and worlds come and go. Uh, and our spiritual paths are not uh, going to be destroyed just because uh, the planet we live on is uh, mm-hmm. becomes unfit for possibly even life, the way we're going. How, how do you see that, David? How, how do you actually see that? You know, the planet's not fit for life, and our paths go forward. How do you understand that? I don't. Oh, I don't try to understand Mm -hmm. things I can't understand. I'm really good at Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I don't try to understand Mm -hmm. karma. I don't try to understand reincarnation. I think interpreting those things uh, uh, is, you know, they're beyond comprehension. Uh, I I believe mm-hmm. in karma. I believe mm-hmm. in reincarnation. I uh, uh, it's, but I I don't know what's going to happen here on Earth. It's very hard to believe the human race won't figure its way out or come out. You know, greatly wounded. Uh, in the meantime, uh, it's sort of like the the monk hanging from the cliff who. They got mm-hmm, the tiger mm-hmm. above, the rocks below, and it smells mm-hmm. the strawberry mm-hmm. on the vine. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, uh, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, pardon me for bringing up a bummer there. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's getting to be my. It's it's actually past my bedtime. Yeah, I'm, I was going to say this has uh, been wonderful talking with you. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it's fun to talk to you. Yeah, me too, David. Uh, keep in touch. I want to know. I want to know uh, how the uh, Helen Twerkoff saga progresses. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'll t- I'll let you know. Yeah. Okay, David. Thank okay. you. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. So thanks a lot, Helen Twerkoff. Very interesting. And uh, hope it doesn't get too cold or too hot up there in Nova Scotia. This has been a QQ Audio podcast. I'm DC Puba of QQ Audio and QQ Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sonor with Doggy Bandita, Feline Cuchita, and Dear Lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening.